let's go ahead and begin. This week we'll dive back into the attributes of God. This is part two. Uh, we uh, went through, last week we did kind of an intro and went through several of, of we, we divided uh, his attributes into traditionally immutable, or sorry, incommunicable attributes, which refresh my memory. What is an incommunicable attribute? Right, right. And the communicable attributes, which we didn't even begin to talk about, and I don't even know if we'll begin to talk about them today, but communicable would be like um, versus that. Right, so he possesses them in perfection. We possess them in some sense, right, in, in varying degrees of... of uh, so anyway, we did that, and we started with like... Th- uh, the first three, I think, of the immutable attributes. So what I want to do today, I want to start by praying, and then we're going to quickly go back through those just to refresh your memory, and I want to pull out some application questions for you, and then we'll uh, hit the rest of the incommunicable ones. So let me pray first. Dear Father, we gather here today. Uh, we're studying your attributes, Lord. We recognize that our understanding is limited to what you've you have chosen to reveal to us, Lord. But even in that revelation, we have every reason to have confidence in everything you have said you will do, everything you've done, um, your, ba- your very character, Lord. You've, you've made it clear to us who you are. And um, not in completeness, certainly there's mystery that we will never understand. But Lord, bless us as we continue to discuss these things, this uh, pure theology, and help us to uh, leaven it with uh, humility and, and uh, always go back to your word, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So I wanted to start this morning. Um, one of the source books that I use has a hymn at the end of every chapter, and the one at the end of the Incommunicable Attributes chapter is this hymn called Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. And there's three verses here that I wanted to share with you. I'm not going to sing them because that would not do anyone any good, but I would like to read through them and let's see which of the attributes, uh, just as you see them, recognize some of the things we've talked about or some of the attributes that you know that God has that we will talk about that we haven't covered yet. So verse 1, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise, in light and accessible, hid from our eyes. Most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days. Ancient of days, that's uh, eternity. Almighty, that's omnipotence. Victorious, thy great name we praise. Unresting, unhasting, and silent is light. So what does that suggest? Unresting means that he's always on the move. There's him and his eminence interacting with all of creation. Unhasting, he's not in a hurry. He's not bound by time. Not wanting, he needs nothing. He's, that's his aseity, his self-containedness. Nor wasting, thou rulest in might. There's his sovereignty, which we'll talk about. Thy justice like mountains, high soaring above. We'll talk about justice. The clouds which are fountains of goodness and love. There's two more of the communicable attributes, goodness and love. Great Father of glory, pure Father of light, thy angels adore thee, all veiling their sight. There's Isaiah 6. All laud we, rule, all laud we will render, oh, help us to see. Tis only the splendor of light hideth thee. Now, I don't read enough Old English to know what that last line actually means. To, so, tis only... Help me understand that. Tis only the splendor of light hideth thee. So he's, okay, go ahead. It's the thing which obscures understanding God from us. The reason we can't understand God is because of the splendor or amazingness of his holiness or his light. Okay. It's like we can't see yeah. through his goodness to really understand him or comprehend him. Okay, yeah, I like that. Even the angels, that's the, that's the thing with the angels in the second line too, right? Okay, so last week we talked about this diagram, and this is just a helper. This is, there's not a drawing of this in your Bible, 
But when we talk about the attributes of God, we talk about him and his transcendence and his, also his eminence. And we need to have a doctrine of both because we can become unbalanced in our theology if we don't have both of these in our, in our understanding. So a quick redefinition here. Transcendence is God is far above the creation in the sense that he is greater than the creation and is independent of it. Now, even this definition, I think, is a little bit misleading because this idea of above, because it implies position. Transcendence is, is almost, it's, it's, it's above in the, in the sense that it's not part of the creation. The creator, creation, or sorry, the creator, creature distinction, in his transcendence, he is far above all of creation. But as we'll see in his eternity, and his uh, omnipresence, there's, it's not really a place. It's a everything above creation. The other definition we need is eminence, or to be eminent. That's to, that means existing or remaining in God's involvement in creation. And just to make sure you, under, to make sure you know, there's a couple of words that sound a little bit like eminence. They mean completely different things. This is a theological term, meaning God remains, even though he's transcendent, we also need a doctrine of him acting in creation, reacting to, the, reacting to prayers, reacting to repentance, reacting to people, um, very involved in creation. Questions there? Comments? Yes? Yeah, eminence means being involved in creation, close by. I thought it meant something was the capital E. That's um, the bottom definition. That's a different word, actually. Oh, Yeah. So imminent, we are imminently awaiting the Lord's return. That's a great use of the word imminent. Eminence is what you would say of a king. That also applies to God in a different way. His eminence, your eminence, your position. But this, this definition means God is pure vitality, pure action in the creation. So last week we started, and uh, I, think, I think I said that most of the systematic theologies you study or read or, or take a course in um, are fairly consistent in their in, incommunicable attributes. That's pretty settled. It's where we get to the communicable attributes that they're kind of all over the map depending on who you read. So last week, we started with uh, unity, which is, the well, we'll get back into it in a second just as a, a review, but independence, unchangeableness, and then this week we'll start with eternal, eternity, eternal, and omnipresence. So last week we said in God's unity, that God is not composed of parts, and he's not local. Any, no one attribute is more localized in God, or uh, I'll show you the diagram here in a second. And he's not a collection of his attributes, and his attributes are not attached to his being. So my question for you today, so here's the diagrams. He's not, he's not sort of a collection of some independently standing uh, good things. And he also doesn't have good things attached to him. Instead, we said, he is those good things through and through. So why is this important? What's the error in saying that God is? What are some practical theological misunderstandings you could have if you don't affirm this? Okay, so a loss of the cre- creator creation creature distinction thing? Yes. A misunderstanding of the boundaries of God and the creation. Okay, who else? Anything else? What about what about if we say that 
mercy and grace is localized in one part of God and justice and wrath is in another part of God, what does that lead to? A schizophrenic God. So there's actually, and this is not as uncommon as you think, there are songs that I know of that reflect this, where Jesus the Son is the gracious, merciful God protecting us from the wrathful Father, which is not correct. True, wrath is a character of God, is, a, is an attribute of God, but Jesus is no more loving than the Father or the Spirit. And the Father is no more wrathful than the Son or the Spirit, and so on. That's why it's important not to attribute these attributes unequally to the members of the Trinity or to divorce them from God in his unity. Does that make sense? Now, eminently, under the creation, the members of the Trinity play different roles in the salvation process, the order of salvation, we call it. But in the Trinity, in its transcendence, they are unified in their purpose. Okay, the next one we talked about was his independence or his aseity. God does not need us or any of, his, any of the creation. He didn't create us because he was lonely or lacking something, needed somebody to love or whatever. Uh, he is self-sufficient in his relationship with the Trinity. And yet we glorify and bring him joy. He doesn't need us, but he loves us. So my question for you here is, if we get that wrong, what's at stake? Yeah, yeah. Yes, Sharon? Right. I think you're both saying the same thing. If God need, yeah, this is great. If God needed something at all outside of himself, then he was not, he's not as, he's not as God as he could be, right? And so this idea that God is somehow becoming something is completely untrue in our, in our, yes, Yeah, that's another thing. So just repeating for the class, if he needed us for any reason, it gives us some level of control in that relationship. And yet we are totally dependent upon him. And even though he loves us, he is everything he ever needed. He's everything he ever was, is, or will be in his, in his godness. So there's no, there's no lack of anything in his... Uh, in himself. And that's what we mean by a satiety or, or, a, or a independence. This is where we spent a good bit of time last time, um, this issue of immutability. Does God change? And we affirm two things. We affirm that he doesn't change. Well, there's three things there, but two major things. He doesn't change in his being, his promises, or his purposes. And yet, in his eminence, he does react and does interact with us in an authentic way. He's not play, this is not play acting when God is relating to us. It's authentic. And you have, to, you have to have both of them in your theology. Otherwise, you will lapse into sort of a flat fatalism is what we discussed last time. So when he doesn't change in his, his character, he can't change who he is. He can't. He doesn't change his promises. The covenants he's made with his creation stand, and he won't violate the terms of the covenant. And when we talk about him interacting with us in his eminence, that's all within the boundaries of the covenant. We are saying that God would never betray the covenants, but he has wide latitude. We talked about Jeremiah 18 last time. He has wide latitude to bless or curse within the boundaries of the covenant. And the timing can change on things as well. And the last one is God doesn't change his purposes. And so we talked a little bit about in the Reformed theological tradition, we believe that God has eternal decrees, an eternal decree, whereby everything from the end to the, oh, sorry, everything that he has determined to happen will happen without fail. So 
This is his, some people call it his secret will. It's secret in so much as that it's not revealed to us. So if you want to know what his decree is for this afternoon, how do you know? Live through the afternoon, yes, yeah. Which is different from his revealed moral will in the Bible, which his revealed moral will is follow Jesus. Uh, I mean, that's a gross summary, but it's true. I mean, he, he has revealed his will to us in how he wants us to live our lives. Um, but that's different from this d- will of decree that we believe he's immutable in. So in his transcendence, we see his unchanging in character, covenants, and counsel. Three C's. Oops. And in, in his eminence, he is interacting with his creation. He uses means to accomplish his purposes. Somebody, we won't spend much time on it, but somebody explained what means are. Well, I put them in quotes. What does it mean that God uses means to accomplish his purposes? I'm sorry? Yeah, it's a means for our salvation, yeah. But, yeah. Right, yeah. So God uses portions of the creation to accomplish his purposes, like bringing kingdoms against Israel in judgment. The one, the one example that I always like to think about is it was the will of God that Jesus go to the cross. I mean, in his transcendent, that was the, that was the divine decree was that was going to happen. But the means by which it happened was a bunch of sinful people making trumped-up charges against him and got him convicted of, of, well, blasphemy for the Jews and sedition or whatever for the Romans. So he ends up, through the purposes of evil people, accomplishing God's will. But And the important thing is that when evil people do evil things and it accomplishes God's will, that doesn't mean make God responsible for the evil. The people are still doing what they want to do. Any questions there? Okay, so let's, let's go through the same exercise with these three things. Why is it important that we believe it's God in changing in his character? If God could change his character, what would that mean for us? Well, Colossians says that the, all things, the whole universe, holds together in Christ. So if his character can change, then that means essentially uh, there is nothing unchanging in this universe. And that leaves us in a frightening uh, place because how then can our salvation be dependable if the character of God is not dependable? Yes, exactly. I love it. Great answer. Um, if God is not dependable, how can we count on anything? If God is, if we if we if we depended upon God to be this way, and then He's He's changing in His character, our, we're going to see our definition of good is largely uh, God is good. The definition of good is godlike. So it's a little bit circular. But if God can change then the definition, very definition of those virtues changes, right? You can't count on anything. What about his covenants or his promises? If those aren't immutable, unchanging, what does that mean for us? We're all in big trouble, right? Because you don't know what he's going to do tomorrow if he can change these covenants. He's made promises, and in his, in his truthfulness and faithfulness, both communicable attributes... He will keep those. What about if his eternal decree wasn't always eternal? Okay, phrase it better. Well, no, it's 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 funny if if his eternal decree yeah. wasn't always. Yeah. Okay. Let's say always refers to eternal. So like, let's say okay. What if his what if his uh, it, what if his decree that he set out at time before time changed tomorrow? Right? Is it changing for the better? 
Is it changing for the worse? What does that reflect upon his perfection? And he didn't, he didn't get it right the first time. Yeah. He did. He's become dissatisfied with himself. And if God is not satisfied with himself, how are we supposed to be satisfied? And how can we have an ounce of faith in a God that's not satisfied in himself? Yeah. Good. Good. And the last one I'll throw up here is, why is it important that we have this doctrine of eminence that God is involved in this creation? Yes, Sharon. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so God, so Emmanuel, God with us, is the very definition, is the perfect example of God being involved in his creation. To take on humanity is to be eminently with us and to, and to be the God-man. You know, it's, it's, um, that is a, a, a sign of his commitment and love that he would do that. But also just in our interactions and in our prayers. I mean, if, if we didn't believe in a doctrine of eminence, you know, then you're left with you only pray because he told you to. And yes, you pray because he told you to, but also you pray because that's part of the relationship with the living God. Okay, so let's move on to the, to, to the next. This one's the new one. God's eternality. What this says is that God is timeless in his own being. He's transcendent. I put on the top right, transcendent over time. He's timeless in his own being. He sees all time vividly. And he does not experience a succession of moments. Now, the second two are really sub-bullets of the first. God is timeless in his, his own being. Um, what we're saying here is that time is a part of the creation. He created, uh, he created space, he created time, he created the stars, he created us. But time is part of that. And before the creation, God is I am. He, he's, he's the transcendent God who, who exists above time or outside of time. So... Psalm 92, 90, verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. So the Bible in multiple places affirms that, that uh, God existed and created everything from nothing, and that Jesus was part of that creation. He, I mean, he was part of the creation process. He upholds the creation. Um, and that... Um, in his transcendence, before he created, he still exists, and uh, and that the the time that the the creation that he is that that uh, redempt how do I say this? Time is part of the creation, starting at Genesis one in the beginning, and moving forward in redemptive history. But he sees it all vividly, and yet in his eminence. God sees and acts in time. So just because he sees and is above time doesn't mean that he can't interact in time. In Galatians 4, 4 through 5, 4 and 5, it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So here's an example of God having a schedule for things. In this period of time, it's time for this. And uh, at, when the time is right, by the way, someone, someone tell me why, what, what the fullness of time had come literally means in history. Why did, why did Jesus come when, he, come when he did? Christ being here, 
Okay. Um, and you know God has a redemptive history program, right? He 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 started it, um, started way back in the garden, the redemption part of it, Genesis three. But we see through Abraham, through Moses, God preparing us for the time when He's going to send the Son. And so, when the fullness of time had come, there's a lot of things that had to converge in time under God's sovereign control for it to be the time for God to send the Son. There's your Hebrews verse. Is that the one you were thinking of? Different one? Yeah, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So um, God definitely has a program and a schedule, and he interacts with us uh, in time at his timing. So what does that mean about us? So under the arch in creation, we are we know that we have life everlasting, right? We have eternal life. But how is that different from what we're talking about here? God's eternity. I'm telling you the answer on the screen, I guess, but someone explain it. Right, right. God doesn't have a starting point. We do. There was a moment when we were created. Uh, So it's better to say that we are everlasting. We're not eternal. So we have everlasting life. We don't have an end. We're, We're immortal in that sense. But we will always exist in time. And, uh, you know, that means that even in the new heavens and new earth, I think it's pretty clear from the scriptures that Time still exists, and we will still exist in time. I think there's a there's some folk theology out there that says because we're eternal that we won't experience time, or maybe in the intermediate state, if you die before the new heavens and earth, you won't experience time. But I I don't see that in scripture. I see I see people bowing at the altar of God, casting their crowns, doing things which take that happens in time. So. We will always be under the arch, and we'll always be subject to um, time. Would you then say that in the eternal state that the transcendence becomes pure imminence? I don't think so, because I'm, I, the, the way I'm understanding transcendence, the question was, do transcendence and imminence merge? I don't think so, because I think, that, again, that sort of leads that distinction between creator and creation. I think there are, even in our eternal, um, even when we're in the new heavens and new earth living eternally or everlastingly, there are still things about God we won't understand, right? God is still infinite over and above the new heavens and new earth. I think so. I think the Bible's pretty clear. We, it, it talks about us having responsibilities. Uh, in fact, there's a verse here that says, Revelation 22, 1 through 2 says, then the, this is a vision in Revelation, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the land through the middle of the street of the city. So water's flowing, there's time. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 fruits, kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. So I think in the New heavens and new earth, there are still seasons, there are nations, there's a tree of light that produces fruit every month, there's a calendar. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So, what do you think? Um, So I don't think that we ever enter transcendence. I think we enter a new heavens and new earth, which is, you know, more or less a a restoration of earth in its good state. I don't know that it's a garden. It sounds like it's a city. But either way, it's a ongoing civilization full of nations that we participate in. And that's all experiencing time. It's just never ending. And meanwhile, I don't think that we will ever 
comprehend God fully. And then we said that last week, that there's always going to be things that we can learn about God, even in the new heavens and new earth. So here is, here's my view of how God sees time. He just sees it all uh, equally, the past, present, and future all at the same time. So my points I wanted to make about we will always exist in time. We will, we will always be finite while God is always infinite. We will not become timeless. We are everlasting and not eternal because we have a beginning. And the next age is never described as being static. We have jobs and things that will happen. And we will be eternal in that our time will never end, but we will still experience those moments. So if we didn't believe that God was independent of time, can you think of any theological problems that would bring with it? You wouldn't be able to see the future if God was subject to time. Okay, yeah. It, it damages his immutability because you see inside being changed. So God doesn't exist outside of time. So it right. So, yeah, it directly contradicts the doctrine of immutability, unchangingness. And is it important that we maintain a distinction between us in our everlastingness versus God's eternality. And I'll just, I'll say, I think it's being careful to maintain that distinction between who God is and who we are. Exactly. And that's, that's kind of what we're saying with this everlasting idea, is that we do have a beginning, we just don't have an end. Whereas God had no beginning or end. And it's a different, it's a different species of eternity. That transcendence eternity above the arch we're talking about is a completely different experience than us experiencing time <clears throat> unending. Right, you know, there is that fact, because we had a beginning, it is different. I just don't think there's a merging there, because I think that us joining transcendence in any way is the same as saying that we become godlike, that we, that we somehow, all those attributes that we say take the, you know, happen in transcendence are become accessible to us. And I think that now and, in, and now and going into the future, we are still as constrained by our humanness as we are now, but we will have an ever-increasing knowledge of God, but never complete. Yes? Okay. Differently, I don't have any idea. Maybe. Um, Eternity is a long time. And I don't know what that, lo- that looks like um, from moment to moment. I just think that every description I read in Scripture is we'll be busy. I don't think we'll be bored. You know, this idea that if it's eternal, that we're going to be up there going, what's next? The same thing as yesterday. I don't think that's true. Yeah. I think right now for me, at least, my concept of time is so wrapped up in, in lifespan, in mortality, right, birth through death, because that is by and large, how we experience time and how we witness other people experiencing time. Because I don't get to witness a whole lot of resurrection. I don't know if resurrection. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I do think that post-resurrection, our understanding of time will broaden and deepen, become mm-hmm. more clear, um, and be therefore different to, to experience time without aging, for yeah. example. Different um, perspective on it, for sure. Right. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. 
So, so yeah, so, so I agree with that part of it for sure, that time is a precious commodity for us now. We have a limited number of days, and there never seems to be enough hours in a day, right? That scarcity won't exist, and that will certainly alter how we view time. Um, yeah, no day, no night, but there will be seasons, apparently. So how that works, I don't know. But I do think that we're not going to be transcendent, timeless, static, immutable. The closest you get to that is floating on clouds forever. I don't think that's true at all. Ah, The easy life. Any more comments on that? Yes. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. I think <clears throat> good points. I think we will experience time differently because we'll have a different perspective on time. My main case, though, is that we don't be, we do not become eternal, timeless beings. In that, yes. One other comment of clarification. I don't think you were saying this, but you you mentioned we're going to be busy, mm-hmm. uh, and I agree with that. But it won't be toil. Oh yeah, yeah. So did everyone hear that? Right, like, so in case no, not everybody heard that, he said, we'll be busy, which is what I said. Uh, he said it won't be toil, because toil was a consequence of the fall, and the work we do is productive work, and I would assume it's supremely satisfying work. So, good point. Thank you. Okay, let's talk a little bit about omnipresence. So this is, we just talked about God being transcendent over time. Let's talk about God being transcendent over space. And this is where this diagram really comes back into its own. When we say God is present everywhere in whole, uh, I'm not suggesting that he's present everywhere above that arch, but not under, that his transcendence pervades creation as well. So, and you know, you guys know Psalm one thirty nine, but we'll 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 hit a verse or two on this. But there's no place you can go that is devoid of God's presence. God, and the second point is that God does not have spatial dimensions. So, in the incarnation, of course, Jesus had a body, has a body. He still has a body that has spatial dimensions. But in His transcendence, you it's. Don't think of that space above as a, as a place, a room, an attic in which God is living. Because the attic itself is a thing. A cre- it would have to be a created thing. Because we've already said that anything that anything but God was created. There's basically created things and there's God. So anything over that arch, it, God is transcendence, is only God. He's not in a place. He's not occupying part of that. He pervades everything over and under the arch in his omnipresence. So it's erroneous to talk about him occupying a space or having any sort of spatial dimensions. Yeah. Or even his presence in the incarnation being different or more. That's a great question. So what you're addressing is what we're going to get to in a second, which is his eminence. You know, we're talking about under the arch, transcendence and eminence is two ways to, we need a theology of both. In his transcendence, he has no spatial dimension. Where can I flee from your presence? Psalm 139. There's no, there, he's every point in space is pervaded with God in his wholeness. And yet, as we're going to see in a minute, in our experience, we see God in 
in embodied in of human Jesus Christ. We see him passing by Moses. We see him in, in several other cases as well. Jeremiah says, Am I God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. Heaven and earth. So that's an expression that means everything. Here's Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the... If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So that's comforting. That means that I often think, uh, my kids had to memorize this when they were in kindergarten or first grade. And so we were all kind of learning it along with them. And the thing that I kept coming back to is there there are places where people suffer so insanely on earth in isolation that if they had this in buried in their heart, in their scripture memory, what comfort it must be to know that even if they are utterly alone, they are not because God is present with them. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. So this is about the temple, and we're about to talk about the temple. But what we're acknowledging is that in his transcendence, he cannot be contained by anything. Yet, there's that yet. You've got to have both. God can be present in a particular place. And this goes back to what you're talking about. We already talked about Jesus being in him. The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's eminence. His presence in his act, his, his presence in the creation. Okay, so the other thing is that we're not going to rabbit trail on this, but there's a whole theology of temple. Uh, Greg Beale has written a lot on this, but this idea that when, when God meets with his creation, that place where they meet is called the temple. So we typically think of the temple as a building in Jerusalem, the Old Testament, or the place uh, prior to that, the tabernacle where God would meet with the elders or Moses, but Eden also qualifies as a temple because it's where humans and God met and walked. The incarnation is a temple. That's literally the ultimate temple. God and man is one. And in the new heavens and new earth, God will be reigning from a throne. That's imminent in the new heavens and new earth creation. God with us. So back to what you were talking about earlier. Did, did, did we get close to answering that or discussing that or to your satisfaction? So, so are you saying that omnipresence is, a, is an attribute that only really applies in transcendence and not in imminence? I think so. I think in his transcendence, God is everywhere. In his imminence, he is in localized, specialized places at different times. Yeah, so the Moses thing you talked about, the burning bush, is an example of his imminence. Any other comments, questions? Yes? In this theology of the temple, um, would you also then say that, that the church, as in the people, not the building, mm-hmm. is, is the current temple? Because the Bible talks about um, God, about the body being the temple, the body yeah. of Christ. I think Paul directly asserts that. Yeah. I think God, the Holy Spirit indwelling us is temple. So temple takes different forms at different times. As of Pentecost, the church is the temple. Um, and in the future, you know, it's, yes? Yeah, yeah so, so the, the definition of temple I'm using, I hope it's right, is that, and I think it is, Greg Beale agrees with me, I guess, but um, the definition of temple is wherever God meets with people. So if that's when two or three are gathered, that's the church in general now. What we're going to do in, a, in 
30, 40 minutes. That's an expression of temple. But I just, I want to break us away from this idea that the temple was a structure located in a particular place. Yes? Uh huh. Yeah. Right. Correct. But like the temple and the tabernacle, that's where he reveals himself to us, and then the passing by. Exactly. Yes. Right. Right. His presence and his transcendence pervades every single point in space and time. You can't. You, you, there's no place that you could possibly run where he's not present. In his eminence, you're exactly right. Is places he's chosen to be to reveal himself for specific purposes and specific things. Exactly, I agree. Okay, so why is it important that we have a doctrine of God's omnipresence? What can go wrong if we don't? Yeah, how can you rule something that you're not present in? Okay, good, I like Good, yeah. So for that's really good. Uh, if you didn't hear it, it's tempting to think that we can hide from God in our sin if He's not omnipresent, and you know that that's the natural reaction. If we're doing something that's shameful, we want to retreat and not be. You know, we want to be alone. But guess what? God is omnipresence. You're never alone. Yeah, so they're interlinked, you're saying? His, omni, his omnipotence and his omnipresence are interlinked. You can't control, you can't reign over something that you're not present in. Yeah, okay, good, yeah. Okay, so we have about 10 minutes left, and... I'll just intro this. I don't think we're going to go into the communicable attributes today. But whereas there's five or six pretty well-cataloged immutable attributes that we've covered, the communicable attributes are kind of all over the map. I was looking at different source materials yesterday. Horton's book has a set. Grudem has like two dozen of them. Um, There's not going to be time to cover them all, you know, the union of all of them that people have identified so my thought is probably that we group them and go through five major groups of his communicable attributes. And we said earlier that his communicable attributes are things that he can, that we can embody to some degree, right? So, but like, let's, let's clarify a little bit because the first set, sovereignty, omniscience, and omnipotence, we're not omnipotent. We're not omniscient. So th- in what way do we share this, this communicable attribute? Well, we can rule over some things. We can know some things revealed to us by God, and we can uh, possess and practice some authority and power given to us by God. Mm, so right. we can do those things sort of in part. Right. We can do those things in part. In fact, the original mandate was to rule over creation. That's a sovereignty over creation. So, in part, we exercise all of these things. But what we're going to review is that they are manifested perfectly in in God himself. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and stop there. Any comments, questions, arguments? Yes. The omni, yeah. So, so is it fair to say that we are shins and potence? <laughs> yeah. Is it, it was interesting because I had the same question when I was going through. I was like, how can this be a communicable attribute? But they all put it in the communicable attributes. And it's because that omni there throws the absolute on the, on the, the attribute, which we don't share in absolutely. In fact... 
fairly poorly in a lot of cases. So it's a, it's a matter of degrees for us. The omni part is reserved for God. Let's go ahead and just stipulate that. Does this seem like a decent group? I mean, I think I've got one more Sunday to go through this, and, and hopefully we can hit these five things um, and relate them somehow to what we've already talked about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting, too, because a lot of these definitions, you know, define goodness. We all know what it is when we see it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If we look at it as knowledge and strength instead of yeah. We all possess some level of knowledge and some level of strength, so Yeah, I think we all. Yeah, we, I think we all agree. The omni doesn't apply to us, but the the idea behind it applies in part to our ability to um, rule or know things or uh, do things. Thank you. Any other last thoughts? Don't be surprised if my slide next week has some different words. All right. Thank you guys very much. Let let me close in prayer for us. Dear Father, um, we come again and uh, recognize that that you are who you are, and uh, even as we study the things you've revealed to us, uh, we do so imperfectly, and, and uh, we, we're thankful for your grace. We're thankful for um, the people that you've gathered that have an interest in this, and I, I, I just pray that this will give us thought for um, the week and thought for um, studying your word and uh, being in prayer with you, Lord. Thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.